Hey guys, it's Josh here. I'm here with Sully. We just wanted to give you a really quick update on uh, what is going on with the show right now in this new series that we're doing and uh, some new stuff that that we're working on that we're excited to give you guys in the future. Yeah, so I don't know if you know this, but Josh Wall uh, was supposed to be in Los Angeles right now, but then a little thing called COVID-19 happened. (laughs) A little thing? (laughs) Yeah, a little little tiny thing. You might have heard of it called COVID-19. And so some plans had to be changed. The original idea was that Josh was going to be in L.A. talking about all of these movies with people in and around L.A., but uh, obviously those plans had to change. Yeah, I was interning um, at a production company and I was taking classes out there, but just a few weeks ago they told us it would probably be best advised to start to head home. And so we, uh, me and my roommate road tripped across the country uh, to get back to Binghamton. So I'm back, I'm home, I'm safe. But since we already announced everything and have an episode out, we decided why not we can still go along with this new genre-centered series. And then we thought, well, why don't we keep doing that? So from now you'll have, um, we have four more episodes of, including this one, of the LA Sessions, all about LA movies coming out. And then uh, after this, we're going to continue doing subgenres, whether that be murder mystery or, you know, 90s rom-coms or whatever it may be. We're really excited to move forward with that. Yeah, I'm super stoked. Uh, we actually just finished recording the episode that you're about to hear and pretty, pretty good episode, I would say. I agree. Yeah, it was a good one. We have on our social media now what uh, episodes we're going to be doing in the future. So if you want to see what movies Josh is going to be talking about over the course of the next two months, you can see what they are, who the guests are. Yeah, that's all I have to say. (laughs) Do you have anything else to say? If you have any suggestions for any type of subgenre that you would like to see, by all means, give us a shout out on uh, on Twitter or Facebook, and we'll definitely take it into consideration. And uh, as always... Thank you guys so much for listening. We really do appreciate all you viewers and listeners keeping uh, keep coming back and checking us out. And without further ado, please enjoy our discussion on Under the Silver Lake. Welcome to Ryan Dolly. I gotta say, Sully, you picked quite the movie did i pick it this feels like a collaborative joint effort pick here well i mean you brought up the idea of doing it and i was like yeah like that that that, that's perfect let's let's do it when did you first see this so like give me why did you pick this give me your give me some of your thoughts like quick thoughts oh boy i first saw this when i was in ireland last year i saw it i think the day it released over there which was a couple months after it released over here and it was absolute agony waiting for it and i should also make an addendum saying that released is a very strong word for the treatment this movie got yes uh, in theaters like this was only playing at the the dublin equivalent of like an indie movie theater here you know like i think Mm -hmm. it played at cinemopolis the theater in ithaca that we frequent to go see the more limited release movies, but yeah, that's the only way I could see it. And Dublin too was this this smaller theater called the Lighthouse, which was kind of my home while I was over there. Oh wow! Uh, but I was super stoked for this movie. I'd seen the trailers. I'd watched the trailers over and over again. Uh, the trailers were super fun, and I was just the whole time thinking, "What the heck is this gonna be?" Like, obviously, it had noir elements, but it was so bright, so colorful. You had Andrew Garfield doing this wild performance and so i was super stoked i got there first day it was in this theater and i just sat there after the credits rolled 
completely dumbfounded, <laughs> just completely like prepared to spend the next th- three, four weeks exclusively thinking about this movie because there's just so much to unpack. Yeah, I mean, there's they. This movie's two hours and fifteen minutes or so, and like this they. Is a- big movie they pack so much shit into the story and there's like so many moving components uh similar to you i wasn't sure when i was going to see this movie first because i mean it premiered at can in may of 2018 and then it didn't actually get a release or come to ithaca for cinemopolis until like april of 2019 so a whole year of waiting because i saw the trailers too oh word did i get that backwards was it released internationally first and then, well, in it the did US the, after it did the festival circuit, yeah, in like 2018, right? And then you know was on hold for a while because that's when the trailer came out. And that's when I was I was like really excited for it. it. Was when we were still at Broom, I'm pretty sure, just when we were about to transfer. And I was like, "What is this movie? Seems so odd." And like, but it seems like so like a classic A24 movie. And you got Andrew Garfield in there, so I was stoked. But like, it took so long for it to come anywhere near me that I wasn't sure when I was going to see it. And then finally, the film theory course that I was taking is called Hollywood American Film, was doing, they always end their semester um, with taking students to go see a movie at Cinemopolis to be current. And that was our that was our pick. And I actually didn't get to go see it at Cinemopolis because I had to go to a, a performance of some, of like a musical or something. But I ended up going home the next day and I rented it. It was actually able to rent on Prime Video for like $3 yeah. or something at that same time. And I rented it and just watched it all in my basement. And it was, and I was so like, at that point I was running on like such a little amount of sleep and just running all over the place because it was finals week. I was just so delirious throughout the entire movie and it made the viewing experience honestly a little bit more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. You felt a little bit more like the main character. Yeah. <laughs> All groggy and confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was great. I mean, it's kind of because it did get released in America in theaters at the same time as VOD. And just to give you a frame of reference for how much I love this movie, I think it it, it didn't take long for it to come onto Prime, you know, not for free, but with a subscription right. after it was like released on VOD because of the whole deal with Prime and A24. But I, I got home from my trip to Ireland and me and my girlfriend just could not wait to watch this together. We had both seen it separately, like at least once or twice. But when we got home, we we're like, we have to watch this together. And we couldn't even wait. I think it was only a week until it would be free with a Prime membership. We bought it anyways because <laughs> we knew because we couldn't just rent it because we knew we were going to have to watch it a couple times. And I think we watched it two or three times over that weekend. Oh, my God. <laughs> when I got home. Like this this has been our um, like our comfort movie. <laughs> when we don't know what to put on, we put this movie on. When I don't know what to put on, when I'm just alone, I put it on. Same with her. I, we both must have seen it at this point like six or seven Jesus, times. That's such a that's a very odd movie for like to have as like your couple movie or like, you know, right? your comfort yeah. movie. <laughs> but I mean, it's fun. Cause we, we love to watch movies that like you can really unpack mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to be things that are super duper deep. We love like mysteries, like any kind of mystery. We're always oh, yeah. on, like we're always talking about unexplained mysteries in the real world. So this movie comes along that's two hours and like what? 20 minutes. Yeah. Of just nonstop, just jam-packed with mystery after mystery after mystery. Like, 
Mm-hmm. It's just so up our alley. Oh yeah, For, I mean, how could you not love a mystery? A mystery is my favorite subgenre of movies. I love a good mystery, and I, I didn't know that that's what this was going to be going into it. It looked like, I mean, we talked about the trailers. They they look much more funny and quirky than the movie like yeah actually is like i wouldn't necessarily qualify this movie as quirky because it's just balls to the wall strange like it's one of the weirdest movies that i've ever seen the trailers definitely made it look different but Mm -hmm. it still made it look like something i really wanted to see but it it still made for a good surprise when i actually sat down to view it for the first time and that kind of makes it better when you you go in thinking it's one thing and then it actually turns out to be something different that you didn't expect and it catches you by surprise and then it's like oh actually Mm -hmm. like i'm more into this than i was expecting like let's unpiece the like let's piece together the mystery uh together and like it yeah, it's a, it's a very engaging experience, and I was just watching it last night, and I was just laying in bed, and I there was so much of it that I had forgotten about, and then I was like, oh yeah. wait, okay, so then he goes to the party, and then there's the cookie, and then there's the songwriter, and it's like, oh my uh-huh. god, like, <laughs> like there's always even if you've seen it six or seven times, there's always something in addition that you have forgotten about last time or didn't pick up last time, um, which is why it's a, it's a very rewatchable movie. Runtime be damned. Uh, it's so long, and I don't think there's ever been a movie where I've actively realized that it bloated. Like, this uh-huh. could be an hour and a half and still be really good, but I didn't care, and I was just okay with the fact that it was bloated, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, do you feel it- the same way, or do you think it, it could have served from being a bit shorter? I mean, there wasn't really any part of the movie where I was like, okay, this could be cut out or this is moving too slowly. Because, I mean, like I said, there's a lot that they pack in. And right when you think the movie's going a certain way, then they add another part of the story onto it. And then it... Like, it, it, there's just so many things. Like, it's constantly changing and evolving. So, like, in that sense, I was like, okay, this this is fine. Like, I'm not... I didn't think it was too long. I wasn't, like, bored. I was, like... And I was also, like... It's a very engaging movie because there's so many things in it. And, you know, two plus two, it, like, it doesn't equal four in this movie. You're gonna have to kind of, you know, accept that going in. And then mm-hmm. it'll make it a little bit more enjoyable. And... It asks a lot of the viewer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I, speaking of which, I think we should talk about the reception of this movie uh, when it first came out, because it's a very mixed movie for a lot of people. I mean, like it's got it's got a 58 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is an average score of five point eight three. It's in which uh, is I think uh, I want to talk about the Rotten Tomatoes score for a second, because I, I think I find it very rare. I I know Rotten Tomatoes is nothing. It's garbage and it means absolutely buns. But I do look at it all the time, uh-huh. and it's kind of rare that a movie lands like right in that that middle section. Like you don't see mm-hmm. movies land in the in the fifties too often. It's usually like in the sixties, in the forties, and then like super high scores of eighty, ninety, hundred, or like you see tens and twelves. Yeah, like having one land right in the middle, having almost like exactly half of the reviewers love it and half the reviewers hate it. Uh-huh. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, most of the time it's like, okay, the the movie itself uh, garners like, you know, 
pretty like a like an average movie let's say most of the time if you see something that's split it's in the audience review so like something like the last jedi you know it gets like a 92 yeah. percent critics reviews and then it's literally 50 50 in the mm-hmm. audience reviews so you know it's it's always a crapshoot but i always think it's important to bring up rotten tomatoes and metacritic and these receptions because i mean they're a big part of you know american movie criticism and we should you know just acknowledge you know and we don't have to agree with it but we should definitely discuss it you know yeah, I, I walked out of this movie so confident that I was going to pull up Rotten Tomatoes and see like an 80 or a 90. Uh-huh. And I was like, 58? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think I can absolutely understand where the negative reviews are coming from because it is, it's a big movie. Yeah. Like it's so stinking long. And if it doesn't capture you like in that first five minutes, you're kind of screwed at that point. Or I guess the movie is kind of screwed at that point. Because if you're not in it for that first five to ten minutes, you're not going to be in it for the next two hours and ten minutes. Looking at the movie from that perspective of someone who isn't just instantly captured by the mist, like the mystique and the filmmaking of it all... I could see how it would be just such an absolute slog to get through. Yeah. As I was watching it last night, I was like, I am definitely into this movie, but if someone told me they hated this movie, I would, or like just didn't like it. I would honestly like totally understand like all the negative criticisms that come with this movie. They, they have some validity behind them. I understand that. But like, I don't know. Like I just, I, it didn't, they never felt that way to me. You know, like some people could say like, okay, this movie doesn't really have anything to say or it doesn't like, it's just like very pretentious. And like, Mm -hmm. I could see where someone is coming from, from that. But like, there's so, there's just so much and it's so weird. It kind of forces me to find answers, you know? And that's kind of one big thing we'll talk about when we get to analyze that. And like, you know, on Metacritic, it's a 60 out of 100. And there are some, you know, fairly positive reviews of this movie, obviously. Um, I have one review right here on Variety from uh, Owen uh, Gleiberman, who said it's a down down the rabbit hole movie at once gripping and baffling, fueled by erotic passion and dread, but also by the code fixated ocup- um, opacity of conspiracy theory. And like, that's all, that's all true. And, but that also, you know, I agree with that, but it's very clear. Not everyone is in for that kind of movie. You know, that's mm-hmm. not everyone's cup of tea for sure. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a roller coaster. Like half half people get on a roller coaster and they come off loving it. The other half, the people come off swearing that they're never going to ride a roller coaster again. Yeah. But you don't know until you ride the roller coaster. Right. I think a lot of the reviews that I saw too, the negative ones were kind of pointing towards uh, this kind of misogynistic viewpoint uh-huh. that the movie takes, which I think is absolutely there, but I think is, I don't think the director is misogynist. I think the main character might be yeah. a little bit misogynist mm-hmm. and we're going to probably get to this in the analysis a bit more, but the whole thing is through the main character's eyes. Uh-huh. Another point that people make, which I have to say, I also kind of agree with is just that we don't at this point need another movie about like a schlocky white dude yeah who just kind of like ends up getting everything he wants um which is my main complaint with the movie is kind of that the main character doesn't have a story arc Uh but i absolutely understand and also kind of agree with the fact that especially in the film culture that we have right now of you know asian americans african americans making so many movies and so many successful movies in hollywood and even now directors like actually like Japanese directors, Korean directors from their countries having success in America 
having a movie about this schlocky white hip like hipster dude maybe might not be the most relevant thing but i don't think that that is enough to take away anything from the movie i agree and like i think that (laughs) i was thinking also when i was watching i was like this movie came out at like somehow the perfect time and the worst time like there was it it came out at the right time because the technology was like up to scale to make the movie look the way it does and to like Mm -hmm. take the risks that the story does because like you know it's coming it's an a24 movie we're in the age of just like since 2013 up until now there have been some like just fucking wild movies coming out of the independent scene and the indie movies have been in a great you know steady resurgence over the past you know almost decade and i i think you know because of that it this movie's a little bit more accepted now than it would have been maybe in like you know 1990 or something like that yeah <laughs> that also being said everything that you said and yeah we'll get into this in a second there are you know that we don't yeah we definitely don't need another character who's just this you know this hipster douchebag or like doesn't really have any redeeming qualities of him and it's different than something like you know good time you know where the characters like just you you so irredeemable but the stakes are really high this one is like different because of how weird it is so it's a mixture of a lot of things that a lot of people just can't jive with like good time is great because it has an anchor in reality you know like it has an anchor in this dark gritty realism this movie it's like a lot of people don't like schlocky white boy main characters and then on top of that a lot of people don't like uh super hard conspiracy movies and then on top of that a lot of people don't like this the kind of specific voice that this director has and just all those things piling up kind of makes for uh, you know, a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> With that, let's get into the, the critical breakdown. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to say about this movie in terms of critique. And uh, I, I definitely, I just going into it, my review of this movie is definitely like, you know, fairly more positive than anything else. It's, it's one part Mulholland Drive, and then it's another part big Lebowski and then it's another part I mean just because he's the same director it follows like this the, mm-hmm. the story structure or like the overall feel of it and the way that it's paced they're similar and I mean also David Robert Mitchell the writer and director right off this is like you know three years after it follows comes out which is an amazing movie but God it's so different like the, these these two movies couldn't be like any more different from each other yeah and I I do love seeing the stuff that I loved about It Follows carrying over into this movie. I think something he does really well and uniquely, even though it's kind of subtle, is just characters having conversations with each other. Yes. Uh, I like, I don't, I can't even pinpoint what it is, but when two characters or like three characters are just sitting in a room and talking, it just has such a specific vibe to it Mm -hmm. and it didn't it follows too and then also i loved the i loved when he dipped his toes back into the horror all the stuff with the owl's kiss Mm -hmm. i think is is it's terrifying the imagery is horrifying Mm -hmm. the way that the the monster moves is so scary and even just the concept of the monster itself is so unique and scary like the it follows monster so i i love to see him kind of you know knowing what he does well and implementing it into a movie even if the overall tone of the movie is pretty different yeah and like the the owl's kiss thing like is so is almost like very unexpected because the rest of the movie it sets itself up to be this kind of 
you know, just it's different. And you're like, I'm not really sure what this story is, but it's not creepy just yet. And then the Alice Kiss stuff comes in. And you're like, whoa, like this is actually like I'm actually kind of tensing up a little bit. And it's only in a few parts of the movie. But like that's a cool blend of tone that I love to see as well. Yeah. Also, before we get too deep into anything, I also just want to say that no matter what qualms you have with this movie, you cannot deny that it is just made really well oh yeah like the camera work is so fun uh just the shot compositions are so fun the way it's directed the performances uh the the editing the score is amazing oh yeah uh, the licensed music that they use is amazing like it's just one of the the tightest technical movies i've seen in a long time yeah, I definitely agree. The and to kind of go back on your point with like the cinematography is just is beautiful, especially with the men, the melt of colors. What I was like thinking of with like characters having like conversations with one another, I think it has to do with the way that the shots are framed. Because a lot of times characters are like right in the middle of the frame, and but the camera's like yeah. off at like a slight angle so that they're looking past the camera. They're not looking like into the camera, but they're still framed in the center and it's like a medium shot so you're still far away so it feels like there's even more space between the yeah. two characters like it's just it's so off-putting and he does that and, and it follows too also even gives you a little bit of a feeling like you're in there like participating in the conversation i started noticing that towards the end especially with uh the stuff with the balloon girl mm-hmm. and at the at the very end when he goes into the tent with the weirdos and all, all of that stuff almost is framed with like that center kind of off kilter thing. Yeah, that kind of like adds more to like the pacing of the movie too because the way that it's cut, like all the edits are like, they really take their time with each cut because of yeah. how, you know, kind of methodical the conversations are going. Like especially when he's talking to the one girl at the party after he ate the cookie and it's like, is there a message in their song? No, I mean, that's just a rumor, but like it takes time. Like they like there's a lot of pauses in the dialogue. And and also, I mean, we should obviously we should definitely talk about how L.A. and the settings are in this movie. I mean, most of this movie takes place in Silver Lake, but there's obviously parts in uh, the Hollywood Hills because they go to Griffith Observatory. There's parts in downtown. They go to the last bookstore. And and what was cool, because, I mean, being out there for the last couple months, there were so many places that I had been to. Like really? Yeah. So like that bookstore that the bookstore that he gets the the Silver Lake magazine thing from. I've been to that bookstore. Um, oh, you went there? Mm-hmm. That place looks so cool. It's fucking that place sweet. looks so comforting. So it's like it's this old bookstore that they and there's like artwork on the wall that's made from books. And then if you go to the that's second cool. level, there's like art and there's a person sewing up there. There's a lot of really cool stuff. It's really great. And then there's the park that the homeless guy takes him to before he finds the tunnel. Then when they walk through and there's like a birthday party going on there. I've been to that park because if, if you start what? there, yeah, if you start at that park, it's like a two and a half mile hike up to the Hollywood oh, sign. That, okay, I see. I actually compare this movie a lot to Scott Pilgrim versus the world, especially on this rewatch that I was watching for film, because obviously the last episode I did, well, not the, was it the last episode? No, no, you did in Bruges no, and then the, you did best of the decade and then you did Scott. Two Pilgrim. episodes ago, <laughs> I did Scott Pilgrim and they both have this character who is like a, a total slacker, just kind of waving his way through life and sucks in almost every way imaginable. But also they both have this location that's so so central and integral to the plot and just the mood and the feeling of the location is what provides 
almost all the atmosphere to the movie and almost all the look to the movie. Scott Pilgrim is Toronto, and in this, it's L.A., and we talked about that a bit with Toronto and Scott Pilgrim. L.A. is such an, an, an interesting location, especially for a super conspiracy mystery like this because there is this huge lingering question of what do the people up in those Hollywood hills know that we don't know right yeah which is like the driving question of the movie and you can't really have that anywhere else like you might be able to swing that somewhere in New York like with like looking up at skyscrapers or things like that but I don't think it would work as well as the whole idea of like this LA Hollywood elite that live up in the Hollywood Hills and yeah. uh, are looking down on us the whole time. And that's kind of like this oppressive force that you just are always thinking about when you're watching this movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like the, the thing with LA is like, it already is just such a weird, bizarre place. Like just in like overall, it just, it just kind of is. And like, you know, locations in this movie, all the places that I just named that bookstore, that park, the Griffith Observatory. It's so weird because when you go to those places, those are almost iconic places in LA and no one's there. Like it's just empty. Really? And well, like, no, in this movie, like when Andrew, Gar- Andrew Garfield's oh, the only in the person movie. in scenes and like, it, it just feels so weird. You're like, I feel like there should be just more people here and it's just him. And you know, mm-hmm. LA is just this big, it's so big, but it's so spread out. And then you have like his apartment complex in Silver Lake that like, and, a lot of the apartment complexes, like the one that I lived in in LA, it's so big, but like the way that the buildings are built, it's like you're closed in, like you're almost in an alleyway, like always walking down. This whole movie like deals with contradictions. It's this movie that takes place over many locations, but you often feel closed in, but LA is such an open space. And I mean, like, like the, but the location does give this movie, like you couldn't set this movie really anywhere else. Because there, there is no other place where the deification of celebrities is more apparent. Right. You have this place where everyone that goes to LA is they're looking for something. They're looking to become something. Uh-huh. And what they're looking to become is those people who are up in the hills looking down on them. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like and it also couldn't take place in like a small town. Like it'd be, it'd just be a completely different movie. Like you could, right. this, this movie isn't like, you couldn't do this in like twin peaks or something like it, it just, it just mm-hmm. wouldn't work. And LA is also like kind of the perfect place where you see a lot of the things in this movie happen, like a rooftop party, having to deal with this band Jesus and the brides of uh the of the devil Dracula, or, uh, Dracula and yeah. uh th- where this woman is dancing around and she's got balloons on her like that is a mm-hmm. total LA thing that's like, yeah all the the whole party scene and stuff where it's like he can just kind of walk down the street and wander into a party no matter yeah where he is or what time it is definitely feels very LA I mean I've never been there but that's kind of what my imagination <laughs> thinks it would be like. Let's talk about Andrew Garfield. Uh, yes, let's talk about Andrew Garfield because I love this performance. Do you love this performance? I do. And it's what's great about it is how different it is for him. You know, you're used yeah. to, you're so used to siding with Andrew Garfield. Literally every movie, you know, like when we first get mm-hmm. him, he's the social network. He's kind of the bright spot of emotion in the social network that every other character is kind of void of. He's obviously. Peter Parker in those two Spider-Man movies and Desmond Doss in Hacksaw Ridge. He's just such a hero. You can't help but like you have to love him. And then in this movie, he is literally the biggest shithead, like douchebag, hipster asshole that I've ever seen in a movie. That's the main character. He's a horrible person in this movie. (laughs) 
But I think he kind of does the good time thing where it's like, if this was anybody else, you almost wouldn't jive with it because he suits the douchebag role so well. Mm-hmm. But also Andrew Garfield is just so charming that it allows you to stay on board with him. Even though he sucks. Yeah, no, I I was definitely thinking that exact same thing. Like, no one else, like, this role has to be played by somebody that we already have preconceived notions for and already like. It can't just be some fucking nobody, you know? You have to, I have to already have a relationship with that actor for me to go along with it. And yeah, he's still somehow still, like, so charming and Mm -hmm. mesmerizing in this performance. Like, he loses himself in this performance. Yeah, the the thing about the performances um it's just it's a full body performance like there's no point where he's only acting with his face he's always acting with his entire body Mm -hmm. and i mean it's a funny movie it's a very funny performance uh the way this dude runs oh my god anytime he runs it's just the stupidest thing ever but you can tell the different times he's running it's like oh this time he's trying to be cool this time he's trying to look sneaky while he runs like Mm -hmm. it almost seems like this guy is trying to look like like recreate uh, a style of movement that he's seen in different movies Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah Um, which I think is super interesting and fun and Andrew Garfield just completely pours himself into yeah for sure and like even when he's like when he's on the phone talking to Jimmy Simpson again he's like holding the dog and he's like walking like he's like fast walking down the street with a box of cereal (laughs) that's my oh that's my favorite that's so good (laughs) how are you doing I'm fine mostly fine It's again, the movie asks you to do a lot. And I think that a lot of it has to do with this main character because, you know, we see the world through his eyes. We get a lot of answers from this movie. We also don't get a lot of answers. And some of those, the fact that you're being asked, just be okay with that going in, that you're not going to get answers to everything that is shown. If there's that warning, then it makes this movie, I feel a little bit more enjoyable. This guy is just you know, only thinks about himself. He isn't, well, he isn't really thinking that much throughout this movie. He doesn't really do a whole lot. He's not working. He's just, he just finds something to do because he doesn't have this importance or purpose in life. So then he just kind of goes, and we'll get in more into this, into, into analysis, but like, there's so many things, like as the mystery starts to turn, you're like, okay, I'm into it. But then he'll do something so shitty. That's like, I should back out of this movie right now, but I want to see where this goes do you know what i mean yeah like especially when he like like 20 minutes in when he beats the shit out of those two kids like uh, yeah there should be like no question if this was any other movie i'd be like i'm done i'm out i can't like <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can't watch a 36 year old man beat the hell out of kids yeah. <laughs> and dude but like it, the story just keeps layering up and like i mean the one thing like we said like you know he's just this You know, he's very misogynistic and the fact that like, especially like when he's, I don't know what the meaning behind this is and maybe we could talk about it later, but like when he hears like when women are talking to him and then they just turn into dogs barking. Yeah. Like that's the part where I'm just like, I don't, that may be the one thing where I'm like, I don't know what this adds. Well, I I think I can help you out there. I've got, I I think I'm starting on my seven, three watch to kind of understand and put together uh, all the different pieces of this movie but obviously we're going to get into that into an analysis which if you don't mind i think we should just jump to because like i said talking about this movie from just like a filmmaking perspective is relatively easy because uh-huh. it's just super well made You're right something we haven't touched on is just like the the obvious 
throwbacks, like visual filmmaking throwbacks to films of the golden era of film, the golden era of Hollywood. Right. Uh, you have like all these things like eye lights and dolly zooms and mm-hmm. these like wide sprawling tracking shots and even matte paintings. Like the when he goes up to the songwriter's house and it's just a matte painting right. of his mansion and then like the house off to the right. That was so fun to see, and it looks so good. I think the writing in this movie is really good because it fits, you know, like the, the story itself obviously is just very, um, very structured or is very complex, but like the dialogue is so, it fits the strangest of it. It almost feels like a modern, a little bit more of a modern David Lynch movie, and there's a lot of references to Mulholland Drive in this movie, but like what's kind of cool about this movie is one thing that I mentioned earlier that it it turns into the Big Lebowski a little bit because of, you know, certain character things. But the thing with the Big Lebowski, and we'll talk about that on a future film episode, is that there's the story kind of becomes like it takes the back seat a little bit. You're not super focused on it after a certain point here. That's kind of the one thing you're really focused on because of how weird it is. Or maybe that's just me. Do you find yourself like really focused on the story or does the story take the back seat and the mystery of it? I mean, that was absolutely something I was going to bring up too. It is a movie that isn't super about, it's not about characters. It's not about emotional arcs or emotional journeys. It really is. It's all the mystery, the plot, and it's all just what, what is going on? What is going on? What is going on? And that's even most of the character. The main character's drive is just what is going on? What is going on? Mm-hmm. What is going on? So I think that pretty much everything takes a backseat to just, you know, giving yourself up to the mystery. With that, let's jump to analyze this. Here's the thing. Everything about this movie is a, is a mystery. Yeah. Every little thing, like all the characters, everything they have to say, like they're, it, it's two hours and 20 minutes, but it's so tight. Every mm-hmm. little thing means something. Every little line of dialogue, every character, no matter how small, all just builds up and builds up uh, into these huge piles of thematic explosion, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's like... And they set it up like really well. I mean, like even in like the first shot, you got the beware the dog killer. They're wiping that off the sign of that. Like, well, no, because that's not the first shot. The first shot is the boom, 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 boom of all the different symbols being flashed. Oh, in your face. right. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. Which Silly is me. just like this wild way of setting up the mystery, the ideas of symbolism, the ideas of like code breaking and and color and everything that the character is going to be dealing with in the future. And then you got beware the dog killer. Right. Which... Is that where we should start? The dog killer? Yeah, I guess if you want, I was going to, uh, maybe I'll save my point. Let's, let's do Beware the Dog Killer because this is one of the biggest mysteries to me. Uh, yeah. it's, Which is weird because it kind of takes it. It's like kind of like a side mystery. This is like a B mystery, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's one of the things we don't ever get that answer to. It's almost like what's kind of cool about it is like there's this whole other mystery about the messages and advertisements and uh, yeah. and the song right and like all of that. And it's framed around this event of the dog killer that just happens to be happening in Los Angeles yeah. at the same time. It's such a presence throughout the entire movie, too. Yeah. Like, any shot where a character is on a street, on the signpost behind them, you see missing dog, missing dog, missing dog. People are talking about it in bars. It's on the news. It's in newspapers. Uh, obviously, it's in uh, Under the Silver Lake, the comic in the movie. It makes sense also because in L.A., like, 
everyone has a fucking dog. Like every single person that you'll see, it's just either has a dog at home or is out walking it. So it kind of adds this another sense of danger to it or like this kind of edge where you're just like, huh, I wonder what's going on. And so like everyone else is kind of even more scared, which kind of brings into when he's walking home or what, did they even say his name? His name's like Sam or something like Sam, that. Right? Yeah. yeah. He like, when he's like walking home and he's walking through the fucking zoo or woods or whatever, and he sees like the guys behind him and then in front mm-hmm. of him kind of it clearly, you know, he's fucking scared. And he has that vision yeah. of, you know, the, of, um, what's the woman's, what's the main f- character's name that she, she, he's looking for. I don't know. I feel like it's like Sarah or something like that. But like when she, you know, she's like on the ground and then she's eating somebody and then the body splits in half and then he yeah. wakes up. Well, okay. What are, who, do you have any theories about the dog killer? Uh, do you think it's, do you think it's Sam? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I feel like the movie doesn't take a definitive, I wasn't finding a definitive stance on it necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of signs that point to it that could be him. Like, because, you know, if he hears the dogs and then that's all he's focused on. And then he already has this hardened aggression about him when he beats up the kids and beats because he's always looking for answers. I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a definitive answer on if it's him or not, but I do. I, I'm sure if you do, I'm sure I you do. do. I do. I do. I do. It's him. It has to be. him. <laughs> and I think it's so interesting i think it adds a lot to his character because i i think that the evidence is unquestionable okay all right why the heck is this dude carrying around dog treats in his pocket i don't buy his explanation at the end for one second uh-huh he carries dog biscuits in his pocket 24 7 all these visions he's having of women they're barking at him like you said he's obviously super aggressive like you said the smoking gun for me is when he's walking with millicent the daughter of the billionaire that goes missing as well. Uh huh. He says he's scared of dogs. Oh, that's right. He does say that. That's right. Yeah. So why would he have treats and why would he have had a dog before? Cause he's learned. And then the way he goes up to Sarah's dog at the beginning of the movie and hands it a treat. Yeah. It's like creepy. Like there's something very unnerving about it. And then as even in that conversation with Millicent where she's like, um, well, anyone who can kill a dog wouldn't think twice about killing a person. And he's like, I don't think that's true. And then he does kill a person later on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I guess that I guess that all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it that's very fair. I guess I wasn't really thinking about it all that much um, throughout the throughout the runtime because I mean, I was just trying to figure out you know this whole other mystery. But like, mm-hmm. that's that's very fair. I mean, yeah, it definitely <laughs> yeah, it definitely could be him for sure. But the thing, and I need to believe that he is the dog killer because it lends a lot to the mystery of why this dude is chasing after this girl that he just met once. Yeah. Um, And this is where my conspiracy theories, my red pieces of yarn that I have taped across my room, the pictures of Andrew Garfield and pictures (laughs) of Riley Keough, this is where it starts getting a bit insane. But my whole breakdown of the dog killer scenario is that I think, and this might sound a bit insane, I think he might be a serial killer, like an actual human serial killer, Sam. Oh my God. Because he's very violent, okay? Uh-huh. And obviously he has something insane against women, right? Yeah. I think that a lot of this movie is, 
you know, from his perspective, I don't know how much in this movie is actually happening, if any of it. I think a lot of it might just be this huge psychosis delirium that he's going through. I, this might be getting way too tinfoil hats, but if you don't have your tinfoil hat on at this point, get out. Um, <laughs> but I think the reason that he chases down this girl so much is because she might be like one of the first women in a long time to let him in you know mm-hmm. and like kind of show him warmth and kindness i think that the reason he's chasing her down is because she's the first girl in a long time that he didn't just automatically hate and want to kill uh-huh which makes this this could all this is all insane but this is just one theory that i have floating around i mean i was getting like uh, not necessarily down that same rabbit hole but like because of the more like because of certain clues that we mentioned, I mean, I was just getting like vibes that he was very much like an incel, like just, yeah. uh, just as a, just as a person, I was just getting like that vibe and makes it even harder to, you know, feel for him. Uh, and I, and the, the movie does not ask you to feel for him. Like the movie's not like no, you not should really. care about this person. If it, if it did, it would be much worse. Like we, we probably wouldn't be talking about it, but like, yeah, I mean, and also, like, I was kind of thinking, like, my one of my big points about this movie is that he, you know, there's a lot in here about, like, you know, older generation, younger generation, and, like, you know, how the youth kind of goes about living their lives, and he's looking for this type of importance and this clear need for something to drive him forward, and mm-hmm. he goes down this crazy rabbit hole of finding codes and messages and this whole underbelly of Los Angeles of this. Yeah. I was just thinking that like, it kind of is just this critique on our generation of not really knowing what to do with ourselves and just trying to find some form of importance and drive because he clearly doesn't have that and he'll do anything to, to, to do that. And like, he's not yeah. working, he's not doing literally anything with his life. This is all mm-hmm. that he has. And you know, that's a, a fair critique. Cause you know, like we we're the generation of trying to make things for ourselves and trying to, mm-hmm. um, you know, just stand on our own shoulders and push ourselves forward. But you know how difficult that is. And, he and I think a, a lot of that is distilled very well in Topher Grace's monologue that he has. Yeah. When he's playing Mario. Yeah, for uh, sure. And he, and he talks about this idea, which is a place where I relate to the movie a lot because I, I, I think about things like this a lot, which is just the idea of there's no more unexplored places in the world. There's no, there's not a lot of territory that hasn't been tread, if at all. Um, and I love the, the symbolism of him playing Mario at this moment, a game where every single secret has been found. There's nothing else to find in that game. It's been picked over down to the code yeah. uh, for years and years and years. And that's what the world is at this point. There's You can't just go out and find an island anymore. You can't just wander into the woods and find an ancient temple anymore. Like Everything has been uncovered. And in a world where everything has been uncovered, what do we do? What is our drive? Which is what makes me think that a lot of this is just in the main character's head because he's just this guy who is just struggling so hard to find some sort of meaning, to find some mystery and the fact that there's no consequences to anyone's actions in this movie too like you i feel like if like if you were going down that theory of like a lot of this is in the main character's head it's kind of his own you know insecurity or like you know just fears 
coming to get yeah. him. That's a fair, like, that's a fair point. Like, I, and there's also, like, I mean, kind of the whole scene with the songwriter. The songwriter is a whole beast on its own, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it is probably my favorite scene in any movie from the past decade. Oh, man. Right? Do you not like at least somewhat agree here? No, it's an amazing. That scene, scene. is amazing. Yeah, it's a. Great I think it's scene. the best in the movie for sure. Uh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's kind of that's definitely like the Everest peak of all the themes in the movie. Yeah, um, which is almost sort of separate from every theme and piece of symbolism we've been talking about so far, because that has more to do with like the deification of celebrities that I mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, I. I was kind of thinking like to kind of like puts in perspective this clear divide between older generation and younger generation. I mean, that, that that theme is not the most apparent necessarily in the movie, but it was one that kind of jumped out to me because to continue what we were talking about earlier, the, the songwriter says our, our culture is the shell of other man's ambitions, which is kind of interesting because yeah. like, you know, like we were saying, he this guy doesn't have any real aspirations, Sam, other than to do something important. And he doesn't mm-hmm. know what that is, but he just knows that that's what he has to do. And the songwriter's like, you know, I, you just recycle this all, you know, this whole thing and like I expect for, um, you know, success. And um, I just like, I take a Kleenex and then I recycle it and put it. And then he's kind yeah, of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. pulling the curtain back on all of everything that Sam has believed, you know, about songwriters Mm -hmm. and about, you know, artists. And I mean, look at how much this character does hold. Like, I think that he's a character that kind of thinks that he doesn't hold anyone above himself, but even he has the Kurt Cobain poster in his bedroom, which he's literally having sex under, you know, (laughs) and he's talking to this girl that he's having sex with about the poster and about how he got it signed by Kurt Cobain's relative or whatever. And it shows that like nobody is really free or, you know, disconnected from this, this sort of brainwash that media has given us this, um, idea that we have to be uh, the main character, you know, that we have to be the hero that we have to do something yeah and i think like also like when he you know when he takes his aggression out and beats the fuck out of the uh the songwriter with the guitar that 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 kind of like was a little bit more of a visual image of like when we don't have answers to something and we want answers because he, like, he really isn't getting the answer that he wants out of the songwriter and he yeah he you know, keeps asking and asking and the songwriter just keeps like messing with him i feel like also our generation is very much built on like we want very clear concise answers to things and if we don't get it it causes aggression and that kind of is you know yeah. clearly symbolized in that in that scene Right, like rioting against the upper class or rioting against corrupt politicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of what that whole thing is. Yeah, exactly. And it's also interesting because when Sam doesn't stop asking questions, the songwriter pulls a gun on him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's really funny. Also, I just want to say like the scene when he like, so he, he it shoots through the cello and then yeah. he like pops up and it's like, ah! yeah. and then pops back down. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> That scene's my favorite. It's great. Um, it's so good. The me- the medley of songs being played. Yeah. Just like the dread, like the, the absolute dread that not only he's feeling, but you start feeling it too as a viewer of like, is this a thing that could actually be happening right now? Like there's, this is something that does happen, you know, like we, something a lot of people don't consider is a lot of the most popular pop songs on the planet were all written by a handful 
of writers and not by the actual like faces that are put out to the public to perform them which which then gets into the you know the deitization of celebrities and fame Mm -hmm. which is you know which this movie deals with so much because literally to the point where they're entombing the (laughs) richest and most famous people because they think that they're gods that deserve these literal egyptian style tombs yeah and like the fact that that one guy which the um i can't remember his name the guy who drew the comic and gave him the cereal box and has the faces i love him too yeah i love that actor i love this character he Um, was in that guy was in one scene of mulholland drive was he yeah have you seen mulholland drive i have not okay so this isn't a spoiler but this is a scene in the beginning of the movie uh that takes place at just a restaurant and then this guy he goes to He's like, I've been in this restaurant before. I've been here in a dream, this dream, and I was talking to you. And that's the same guy. And so it makes total sense that he would come back in this yeah. movie that's very much inspired by David Lynch and Mulholland Drive. And I was like, that's, that's, cool. a, that's a cool parallel. But um, that guy is kind of the key to a lot of this. He's kind of the center of this yeah. mystery. Because Absolutely. like a couple of those themes come together. So, And we'll talk about this this last one in a, in a bit about the hidden messages and everything like that. But like mm-hmm. he has so many face molds the of faces. Famous, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's this guy who's like the most like intense conspiracy theorist in this movie just full of conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. And even he isn't above literally having cast molds of famous people's faces and thinking I have to have a family so I can pass down these visages of people who even I, this insane conspiracist view as being above me. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, you know, it kind of adds in again to like, we want, you know, the same level of success that like, if like that, it seems as though we're told it's our entire lives. If you know, these people, the level of success that they had, it is obtainable as if they're normal people. And, Mm. you know, and then the fact that everyone's treating them like gods and like literally not like they're human beings dispels all of those myths that we've been told like our entire lives and that maybe it's not obtainable, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're just kind of, you know, stuck in this endless search for something important that finally puts us on the map. But it's just clear that like, you know, that, that idea of fame can get to people like that's that yeah. is a that is an obsession and that is a drug that is like very hard to like you know to stop that addiction you know what i mean in addition to the deification of celebrities there's also this very strange thing that the movie does where it shows that we don't actually care about celebrities as people we just care about them as their celebrity and you mm-hmm. see this a lot when andrew garfield goes to that movie that's being shown in an actual graveyard with actual yeah. people buried in it, actual celebrities buried in it. And people are just putting their stuff up on the screen, like over the literal dead bodies of famous actors. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't just end there. Later, he goes down into a music show that's being ha- like carried out inside of a, like an actual, what is it? Like the above ground tombs. What are they yeah, called? No, I, I don't remember what it's called, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're playing music in an actual one of those, selling their music in an actual one of those. And then, even when he goes underground, the underground music club, now they're under the graves. Like they're just completely dancing around the graves and just not caring about the actual physical body and dead person that's here. All they care about is the idea of that person. Or like, yeah, the image that they're a celebrity. And so like, yeah. you know, that guy, that that's why the guy has just the busts of their 
faces like he you know the face and you know the name or mm-hmm. you know how about the fact that at that movie that like the cup like the the brides of dracula they're literally leaning up against alfred hitchcock's tombstone yeah it's just the idea of fame and these people just happen to be the most recognizable you know embodiment of that mm-hmm. and then anything beyond that after they've been dead for you know x amount of time doesn't really matter yeah, and bring it back to LA. Like, where is a better place to play with those themes than a city where literally everyone has come here to try to become something? Like, it's kind of the ground zero for people to go and and chase this dream that they've been fed their entire lives. And again, all of that then comes to a head when they're in the when he's in the tent with the with the three women and the <clears throat> the one guy, and you know they're like you said they're literally putting all of these famous people in tombs they fake the one guy's death like you could like mm-hmm. I, I i honestly love that as a detail <clears throat> yeah. because that's the classic conspiracy theory oh this person yeah. died oh, died in a car explosion yeah oh they must have faked their death they're still alive they're just hanging out you know in, mm-hmm. in some place <laughs> well i think what's really interesting about the whole tomb scenario too is that that isn't really super defined by public opinion and we see this a lot like this even this idea that fame isn't the ultimate goal or the ultimate end game with the shooting stars Mm -hmm. and how there are these people who achieved that dream finally got there and then where are they now they're just escorts for people who want to have sex with former stars the scene that probably disturbs me the most is when he says to the balloon girl, like, you were famous? I didn't know you were famous. What were you in? And she was like, I was in a sitcom when I was five months old. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, insinuating that there are adult people that are calling this hotline specifically wanting to have sex with this girl they saw on TV at, at five months yeah, old. Yeah. Which just goes so deep into, like, the disturbing nature of elitism and, like, this Hollywood elitism. But... What the guy says is like the reason these people are being entombed, it's not because they're famous or good people or anything like that. It's just that they have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. Like his explanation is it takes a lot of money to do this stuff. So obviously we, we are like special and should do it, you know? Right. Like he, like that's what he says. He says it takes a lot of money to fake your death. It takes a lot of money to build these tombs and dig tunnels out under the city of Los Angeles without anyone knowing. And it's all about the money, not about like their success or how they are as people or anything like that. Yeah. And I mean, this movie is a movie about obsession and like taken to those, you know, the most extreme lengths to preserve Mm -hmm. an idea that you love or something like that. And again, that kind of goes along with this other message about the hidden meanings and messages in media, which is this movie is like a treasure trove for, you know, any communication student, because we've seen so many of those ads that they talked about like in class Mm -hmm. and like how, you know, sexual innuendos and like the sexual innuendos. Yeah. yeah, We've talked like endlessly about that. And that kind of makes it, you know, because he says um, early on, you know, do you really think that media, it, it's stupid to think that media only has one meaning. Yeah. And that is true. Like that, like that's, yeah, that's something that me and my girlfriend talk about all the time, which is probably why we were so like instantly magnetized to this movie because it is insane. It's, it's insane to think that media only has one purpose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane. Yeah. And like the, and then that kind of carries 
over to the whole movie itself. It's like, it's like, you know, kind of naive to think that this movie or any of its themes are only saying one clear thing. There's so much under Mm. the surface. There's a lot of subtext. There's more subtext that needs to be said than what is actually being said for it to actually come together and project its message. And so, you know, like there's, and there's even a good quote in here where I can't remember who says it, but Someone says, this isn't a world anyone with any sense should stay in because the world of this movie like just doesn't yeah. make sense. It like there's so mm-hmm. many oddities and so many mysteries and like just so many questions that are left unanswered. But again, that fits in with these images and these messages that we are kind of built to understand from an early age. You know, the power of fame and the power of success where that can lead you and X, Y and Z and whatever. There's a lot that we actually aren't that you don't understand until much later. That's a great jumping off point for the final scene where he goes through all this crazy stuff and finally has maybe not all the answers he was looking for, but at least enough to for him to sleep at night. Yeah. Um, and there is that thing of you'd be insane to want to keep living in this world, mm-hmm. which is touched upon with, I think, the, the owl's kiss, which I think might be an allegory for suicide maybe. Because you have the artist who uh, is met by the owl's kiss after you see that, like, obviously he's not doing too well. Yeah. <laughs> he's got this crazy house. He has this crazy comic book. He has his house wired up with cameras and stuff. And then we see the owl's kiss again at Sam's darkest moment when he's alone in his house and freaking out. He's going to get kicked out. But I think that the end of this movie, when he goes and sleeps with his neighbor, his hippie neighbor, mm-hmm. who you can kind of insinuate is disconnected from all this media and disconnected from this world at large. Doesn't like music, doesn't like TV. Like he, he kind of goes to her to finally say, you know, I'm done. Like I, I, I'm, I'm going to cut myself off from all this media because it's doing me nothing but bad. And I think the best, like the coolest way that they show that is when he's looking out over her balcony at night as his landlord comes in and kicks down the door and literally takes away from him all of his media, mm-hmm. his apartment that's just a shrine to pop culture and media, all of his magazines, his instruments, his TVs, his movies, uh, posters, um, Playboy magazines, all of his conspiracy stuff. Like he just decides to let that all go um, and, you know, do it. Uh, Sarah's character says and just make the best out of the situation he's been thrown into. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And like, I, I guess in that sense, there is somewhat of an arc. I don't really know if it's a full arc, though, but I mean, I mean, there's I don't think it's a good arc. Yeah, it's like there's clear change. Like, OK, he he yeah. got out of the world that was, you know, driving him to obsession and mm-hmm. you know he is clearly you know happy about that at the end and we get the cool rem song as the as the fucking credits are going but like the more that we've talked the more i've kind of you know thought more about the the media stuff and the message and the fact you know ultimately i feel like you know the movie is a is about that is the overbearing you know weight that you know the that media and you know, the messages and whatever can weigh on you. And it's, I can't blame him for wanting to get out of, you know, leaving everything behind and going to live with, you know, Mm -hmm. his neighbor, whatever, ending up there. Like, I feel like that's a, that's the first rational thing maybe that he's done in the movie. And it's clear that, you know, this is a critique 
like just on how on consumer culture and you know just conspiracy theorists in general and uh, just the general obsession because like think about the crazy shit that he's doing the rabbit hole that he goes down he finds a map and then he finds like in it's in nintendo power magazine and then he matches the map up there and then he has to go to the observatory like it's fucking crazy like why would Mm. anyone want to put themselves through that and it's be you know it's definitely you know bearing down on us because of media and all of the shit that we're exposed to on a daily yeah. basis and he needs to find that mystery for himself to solve he needs to find that thing that will make him a hero like save the girl yeah for sure and i mean i don't think anyone should necessarily take away from this movie like media is bad we need to we need to just completely cut off from it that's not that's not the purpose the, you know the point is is that like and also it makes sense for this character because of how you know shitty he is and that he doesn't have a purpose so we find our own purpose you know he finds Mm -hmm. his own purpose in this whole mystery and by the end of it hopefully i mean we can't really know for sure probably not but hopefully he figures out like okay i need to actually have a good you know sustainable life for myself yeah well i mean Uh, Like I mentioned before, it is this very unique thing in Western culture to kind of think of yourself as singular, you know, to think of yourself as a singular unit that your only responsibility is to yourself and your own uh, success. Whereas in a lot of Eastern cultures, your duty is to your family. It's to your people. It's to the culture as a whole. And so this idea of being like the main character in a video game or a movie or, you know, anything, being the lead in a band, being someone, some, some like everyone can look up to is a very like Western ideal. And it's like a very LA ideal too. Yeah. I have a couple outlying questions and it's kind of what makes me question the viewpoint of Sam as a narrator. Like for one, what the heck is up with his apartment? Like why does, where did he get the money to get so much Mm -hmm. stuff? You know, why can he live in such a nice apartment when like what, what kind of job did this dude hold before? I assumed, I mean my, okay. So I, I also thought like throughout watching this movie that like he's much younger than he actually is like the right, character yeah. itself is like, like more in the I, I was, 20s yeah more in the like the 20s range so i was thinking like okay maybe he had a steady job for like just a you know a short period of time or whatever and his mom may have been like you know sending him money or whatever because i mean also you know he calls his mom like you know two or three times throughout the movie so i think maybe he was getting some steady income but his apartment is like really nice like yeah. it's it's like a really nice place to live because, I mean, he's an unreliable narrator and, like, you know, he doesn't pay his rent. He's not really worried about it. He doesn't, that's not really a crisis in the movie of yeah. him having to pay his rent. And the fact that, you know, time kind of gets thrown out the window because, like, it's supposed to be, like, five days this movie <clears throat> takes place in. And it feels like it. it's, like, over a month. Like, it, it's, like, it's all thrown up in the air, really. Yeah. And there's so much stuff. Like, the scene with his ex-girlfriend I find super interesting where he follows the coyote and just kind of wanders into this party where he sees his ex hanging oh, yeah. out with like her new boyfriend. Uh-huh. And it, it makes you wonder like what was their relationship and how did it end? Because that has to be kind of like the spark that sent him into this spiral. And so it makes you wonder, there's this one really interesting theory I read. Uh, someone said, I can't remember the user, but it was on Reddit. Um, but they, their theory was that 
their relationship ended when Sam accidentally killed the girlfriend's dog. And so um, like, that's what ended the relationship and kind of sends them into this crazy spiral. Uh, and that theory also says that like all this dog killer stuff isn't real. It's just like a projection that he's putting onto the world. Cause like he killed his girlfriend's dog and all he can see himself as is this terrible person, like this terrible dog killer quote unquote. And he constantly sees that message around yeah. town and like, yeah. And whenever, const- yeah. And whenever he like, uh, sees women getting mad at him, like all he sees is like dog, dogs barking. So that's an interesting theory for like, maybe there is no dog killer at all that I thought that's kind of fun. That's interesting. And I like the thinking behind that. I probably wouldn't subscribe to that though, just because that kind of makes him, that gives him a little bit more, um, humanity and sympathy than i think he deserves like, fair enough I, yeah that's like, fair enough. i don't really want to give him that i i don't really want to give him that satisfaction if that makes sense you know no yeah i get that but i think that's also probably the best thing about this movie is just that things aren't answered solidly and there may be multiple answers hidden throughout the movie to any given mystery but i do like that there is stuff there to solve like most things most of the mysteries can be solved if you just obsessively think about it for a long time and you can come up with different conclusions than other people Uh, but the one thing that i love is that there is one mystery that they don't solve and that is who exactly is like doing all of this who is the person that hires the songwriter the songwriter refuses to answer who is the company that's building these tombs for these rich people never answers and i think that is one of the few cases in a movie where we aren't really given anything to go off of but i'm kind of okay with it just being this mysterious upper class like elite company or conglomeration or illuminati of some sort that's just like always presiding over this world and everything that goes on in it every piece of media yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I kind of assumed that it was like it was, you know, the people in Hollywood Hills. It was the elite. It was the, the A-list celebrities who were just enlisting people who were fans of theirs or who loved that idea of fame and yeah. any, you know, modicum of like help that they can do for these people who they idolize as gods and serve them. You know, they would pick up and help and have them. Yeah serve them or something like that and but like i mean it's definitely a little bit more it's a little more fun just to just to think like okay it's not answered you know so what where could my mind take me to go but i always Mm -hmm. assumed that it was like it was because they talk about you know what do they know that we don't know well if they if there already is that preconceived notion that they do know more than us then they would be kind of the big the big brains behind all but i think it's also kind of this idea and it's something that maybe stops his investigation at a certain point is just that there's always something bigger, you know, like there's always, mm-hmm. there's always someone like the next up above the mystery you solved. Like he solved the mystery of the songwriter, but he didn't solve the mystery of who's hiring the songwriter. He solved the right. mystery of the tombs. He didn't solve the mystery of like the infrastructure around these tombs. Like who makes the wristbands, who tells the rich people, like where to go, like who makes these maps and stuff. And I think that idea of like, there's always something, always something bigger is what ultimately makes him give up and makes him stop. All right, with that, let's jump to the human connection.
so I mean this kind of gets into like you know why we you know why we're attracted to this movie why it adds to our love of you know the film medium which we can answer in a second but again I think we should bring it back to where we started in the beginning which is a lot of people are steered away from this movie and you know this is a good example of a movie that could be 50 50 like we you know you and me we both say we love this movie and like we could go in and find all of this stuff but someone else could look at it and be like there's nothing this is just a bunch of flashy images and like ridiculous storytelling for the purpose of doing so what do you feel like this movie says or like this movie shows about us as viewers now in this age of early 2020 it's really a reflection of ourselves as far as how we consume media and what we allow media to do to us uh which is it's pretty scary to be shown Mm -hmm. like flashed back at you like it's almost like a bright and happy episode of black mirror same kind of idea i think it also just plays into a lot of our fears really well like topher grace has that other monologue where he talks about how all of us have slight paranoia because our monkey brains can't handle the thought of being you know monitored 24 7 with cameras and media and stuff and i mean even like we're watching this movie it's such a condensed version of like almost all the media we've had in this world since the 1960s like it has all of these classic movie references it has all these classic movie tropes and we're sitting here and we're just enjoying that and soaking that in but at the same time it's telling us not to which is very strange but it makes it super engaging oh yeah for sure and i i that kind of like goes down what what i was going to say is that like and i mean we've covered it before with you know andrew garfield's character and position in it is like with any movie like we all feel like especially like you know i feel like our generation like you know we pride ourselves on how much we feel as the how much we think we know you know we we can be a very you know cocky generation in that sense that we feel like we have more answers now than we have before and i think a lot of that definitely has to do with the you know with social media and you know what we consume and technology um so when we don't get correct answers we lash out negatively something like darren aronofsky's mother was just like slammed or hereditary or something like that just if there's if it's not something we're used to seeing or it doesn't have a very clear cut and dry two plus two equals four kind of feel to it You know, sometimes, you know, a lot of times most of us don't like that. I mean, I even found myself, I was watching a couple interviews with the director before we did this and he just like, everyone kept asking him questions like, what does this mean? What does that mean? And he just kept saying, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Like, I know, I know what it means and like what the answer is, but I'm not going to tell you because I want you to solve it yourself. And even I, after watching this movie a million times and getting so much from it, was getting frustrated with him Mm because and it's like almost like lashing out in my own mind against him because I wasn't getting the answers I wanted. And I think also that the, the next level of that, it has to do with the fact like if we try and find an answer, we want to make sure that it's right because if we're wrong, then that may, you know, put down our intelligence or our intellect and that we, and we don't want to feel that mm-hmm. we want to, we want to have answers so that we are, you know, we're hundred percent clear and we can prove to somebody else that they that I was right and that you were wrong. And that's like a huge a big thing with our generation and like, you know, how we communicate with each other now nowadays. Or just really with like anybody, you know. Yeah. Like, like on social media, if someone gets like one little fact wrong in a post that they make, they just get 
slammed. Yeah. Like horrifically <laughs> slammed. And like, it's almost like they can't show their face on social media anymore because they made this one little tiny mistake. And it's sad that that that's kind of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the world of communication that we're, that we're living in right now where we can't just be like, Oh, I was wrong. Sorry. I'll fix my mistake. Yeah. You know, and you have to be sure on. to be right. Yeah. And that makes, you know, everyone else because of that, you know, now we're just frantic to be right. And to get those answers that will literally search anywhere to, mm-hmm. to find it and listen to, you know, almost anybody. If, if an answer is different, we might go down that rabbit hole and be like, no, this is wrong. This is what it means. And like, and it, it, it's scary, like in, in that way, because like that is such a real thing that we go through, yeah. but we do it behind the safety of, you know, technology and the internet. And it's, it's just a very real thing that this movie discusses that, you know, and I understand that like when people say they can't get into this movie because of Andrew Garfield's character, because of how odd it is, that's totally valid. Yeah. That's completely fair. I agree. I, I, I completely agree with the fact that we have almost like this is way too many movies about just some random white dude who's such a douchebag mm-hmm. um, and he's our main character. And I think that this movie is especially bad in that sense just because of like you look at a movie that does it that kind of character really well, which is Scott Pilgrim, and it does it mm-hmm. well because he has a complete arc and learns his lesson and grows as a person. Not only that, but there are also strong female characters in the movie that have an arc and learn their lesson and grow as a person. But this movie is, it's like, it's a, a, it's really a boy movie. It's like, yeah, it's all boys. And, um, I have this quote here from one of my favorite critics, which is, uh, Emily Yoshida from Vulture, the website Mm -hmm. Vulture. And she says, uh, I kept coming back to the women in this extremely boy driven movie. Mitchell suspects that they're all on one big conveyor belt to be chewed up and spit out by Hollywood, or if they're lucky locked away in the dungeons of the rich and powerful. It's a rather pedestrian imagining, uh, for an otherwise admirably cuckoo film. And I, I kind of agree to that to a certain extent, but I do at the same time kind of feel like it brings, um, like recognition and public awareness to things that people might not otherwise think about, but I do think it could have been done in a bit more humanizing way. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's very clear. There are no real strong female characters in this movie. Right. And that is definitely, we should definitely make a point to say that. And that definitely, especially in this day and age, like puts a damper on the movie. Like it just does. Like I, even for myself, like I find myself, it's easier for me to attach myself to a very strong female character than say a male character. But like the, the thing about it is that like, there's a reasoning behind the way women are treated in this movie. And I understand that, but you're definitely right. They could have done it in a complete, in like a totally different way and kind of approached it with a little bit more grace than than the way that they do to round this out. Give me a really brief, and we've talked so much about this movie already. (laughs) Uh, Just quick, quick thoughts on why this movie, you know, adds to your love of film. The movie is a total blank check. First of all, you know, he made it follows and that like, I don't know, like, made 30 times its budget uh it mm-hmm. was a pretty sick return and so this is such a movie where he obviously they're just like what do you want to make next we'll let you make anything you want so the passion that just seeps out of this movie it's obviously something that's been sitting around in his head for a long time gives me like it sparks my passion for filmmaking uh, i also connect to the main character a lot which i don't like to say does not give me any pride to say that but like when he's 
going through and solving all these mysteries and cracking all these codes, like I know that feeling um, like when I'm researching internet mysteries or unexplained disappearances or even movie ARGs like the Cloverfield ARG and stuff. Like I felt that feeling that the director is so captures so well uh with him cracking these codes and like freaking out like playing the record backwards and losing his mind every time he makes a breakthrough like i i can really connect to that passion in filmmaking and then the passion that the character feels for solving mysteries and it's just like it's it's just a fun time like i like i said i've seen this movie seven times and Hell, just talking about it now makes me want to watch it again tonight. It's good looking, it's well directed, and it just gives you so much content to delve into and think about once the credits finish rolling. And might I say, beautiful credits that rolled. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've always, I've always wanted this—the bright colored background credits with like graphics mm-hmm. on the front and stuff. Like that was. That has been in my mind for so long, and it's always blown my mind that no one has ever done that. So when this movie did that, it made me really happy. And uh, plays "Strange Currencies" by REM, which is like one of the best oh, REM best. songs. I think that's my number one listened to song on Spotify as of last time I checked. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's a great, great song. I love that. Song. Um, also, as what's the frequency, Kenneth, in there? Uh, my my answer is uh, a little bit similar uh, to yours. I I've said it before many times. I love a good mystery. Mm-hmm. I really love like and there's a great mystery to this movie that's so different and also so real like we said how it like you know delves into media and communications and hidden messages like that's like that's i like that like it's fun because i know that it's grounded in a fact that it's saying that this isn't like this stuff isn't real you know like it's not like you're not gonna go and find this cereal box and find this map and like you know it'll take you to this homeless guy at griffith park and i definitely agree that when he's solving the mysteries and you're trying to put it together in your head and he succeeds you do feel like oh okay i got an answer all right that's cool but like the one thing that i like i really do take away from this movie is like you know there's a high level of creativity that david robert mitchum put into writing and directing this movie it's very clear that he you know, had a passion for it. And it's a beautiful movie to look at. Like it, it looks really good. And like we said, it's made really well, but honestly, like my main thing is and this kind of negates almost what we were talking about in a way, but I honestly like now, especially with movies like this and mother and Mulholland drive. If I like go into it and understand the fact, or even if I walk away and I'm like, I know there are things in that movie that I'm never probably going to understand, but I'm still going to think about them. And that makes the movie itself more impactful. Yeah, it gives it life that, beyond. I mean, that's what makes a, a good movie from a great movie. You know, it's yeah. the, it's the life that the movie has after you're finished watching it. Yeah, and I definitely am going to continue to think about this movie. And, you know, there's when I go back, I hope that when I go back and watch it again, I hope there are more things that I see this time than I did, you know, the last time and so on and so forth. There's just, I love when there are so many things to find in a movie and to unpack and delve into that you can't possibly get them all on the first viewing or even in your lifetime, you may not get all of them, but you're always going to look for that mystery and it, it makes it fun. Thanks a lot, Sully. Thank you, Josh. All right, that does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Thanks so much to Sully for coming back on and for producing this wonderful show. For more Frankly, I Love Movies contact, please go follow us on all social media. We are Frankly, I Love Movies on Facebook, at Frankly Podcast on Twitter. And if you'd like to follow me on uh, Instagram, it's Josh Josh 21 for all fun updates on what's going on in my life. 
Two weeks from now, the LA Sessions keeps on trucking when Casey Clark joins us to talk about Ridley Scott's 1982 dystopian sci-fi film noir classic, Blade Runner. So definitely come back and check that out. It's going to be a wonderful episode. And until then, I'm Josh Wall. And frankly, I love movies. Movies.